10, Gospel of John, fourth book in the New Testament, um, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. If you're visiting, again, it's great to have you here this morning. Welcome to downtown Presbyterian. And we are, just to let you know, we are in a series that we began in the fall. We dropped it for a little bit during Christmas time and resumed it last week. We're we're studying this book of John, and uh, as I've mentioned several times, this is not to make it to be more important than the other books, but this has just always been a go-to book for people to grapple with who is Jesus and what did he claim, what did he do, uh, what did he say he came to do. So we're studying the Gospel of John. This morning we're in chapter 10. Uh, Before I read this text, I want to read to you some comments by a writer. Uh, This is a guy who grew up with uh, something of of a churched background and then went through a real time of, of skepticism and then was brought back to, uh, to the Lord. But he writes about just some of the feelings of... Some, and this, this will connect with a lot of you, not everyone, but just some of the aftermath of having a churched childhood. He says this, I associated much of Christian doctrine with children's stories because I grew up in church. My Sunday school teachers had turned Bible narrative into children's fables... They talked about Noah and the ark because the story had animals in it. They failed to mention that this was when God massacred all of humanity. And, and he really makes a great point is that, you know, you'll go a lot of times into a church and maybe in the, the nursery or the children's wing you'll see a stenciled, you know, happy wooden boat with smiling people and, and smiling animals and... Uh, I'm sure they were extremely glad to be in the boat. Uh, There's no doubt about that. But but just, I mean, we don't know how many people lost their life. It was a severe, severe plague on sin. Uh, God's severity. And it goes on to say this. It took me a while to realize that these stories, while often used with children, are not at all children's stories. He says, I think the devil has tricked us into thinking so much of biblical theology is story fit for kids. How did we come to think the story of Noah's Ark is appropriate for children? Can you imagine a children's book about Noah's Ark complete with paintings of people gasping in gallons of water? Mothers grasping their children while their bodies go flying down white rapid rivers? It's a very stark way to say it, but it's it's kind of a good mouthwash if maybe that has been your your upbringing and that some of these images in the Bible don't have uh, the stark nature, the the punch that they should have if we take the words on their own terms. And the reason I say that is that this text is one in which Jesus gives us this famous metaphor for himself. And where, where our minds might very well be, be tempted to go is sort of an image of a handsome shepherd in just stain-free tunic cuddling a small lamb. And on the one hand, I, I, I wouldn't play down that if, if that depicts something of a, a, a loving, compassionate God, then yes, that's accurate. But... It, it, it's easy to let this go sentimental. And if we take the words on their own terms, feel the punch 
of who Jesus is saying he really is. He's the one that thought up this metaphor, not us. All right, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen. Let's ask God to bless our time uh, in the Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that right now you would allow us to see what your Son is showing us, not only about himself, but about you. But Father, we just closed with the words that everything he said and everything that your precious Son was doing and saying was a charge that he received from you. So Father, let us see you rightly. And let us see and hear Him. Uh, We need you. And we ask that you would help us in this way. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as as we consider this passage, let me say this again, that I I would not for a moment want to downplay, uh, especially if it's beneficial to a child, the good image of the shepherd holding the lamb, knowing that lamb, holding it in his arms, close to his heart, 
with great compassion, great protection. I mean, that's very much tied in with this text. But I want to say this to a room that's largely adult. Um, Wherever you are in life, I mean, some of the very things that Robert McKinley was praying about a moment ago, we don't need sentimental help, do we? We don't need sentimental comfort. We need strong, robust help. Strong, robust comfort. We need it for our own individual lives, and we, we need it because it's a dangerous world. Now, I, and it, it, again, this was, none of this was scripted between Robert and me, but when he was praying, it was interesting that he said, it's surreal the numbers that are thrown out about Haiti. Can you get your mind around hundreds of thousands of people killed or displaced? Can you? Because I cannot. And after a while, as we're increasingly desensitized to it or we're overwhelmed by it, yeah, you turn the channel. And Because every time you're looking at that, you're sort of at a crossroads. Either I can feel this and it will crush me. Crush me. Or I'm just going to have to not feel this and get on with life. Sort of a terrible dilemma. But it's a world where we need strong comfort. This metaphor, again, that we did not invent, that Jesus gives, and that the original hearers largely did not understand, is robust comfort, guys, for fallen people in a fallen world. Now, here's what I want to look at. First off, what's the context for him saying this? Just, in other words, Jesus was not just a guy that walked down the road with his hands in his pockets just saying, you know, I know this great one about these two sons. One's a prodigal and one does what he's told. And it goes a little something like this. All that is, is elicited by the circumstances around him and, and that's why he tells the story. That's why he uses the metaphor. Sometimes it's easier to see why than other times. So first off, what's the context for all the good shepherd stuff? Then second, just what is the figure of speech? What are the components of this, of this image, this metaphor? <clears throat> and then third... What is it that that the sheep need so badly from him? All right, so the context, then just the figure of speech itself, the metaphor, and then what is it that the sheep, that's us, uh, need so badly from this shepherd? I won't spend a lot of time on the first point, but what's the context? The context is the passage that we considered here last week. Now, if you weren't here, the passage we considered was right before this, John chapter 9. And that whole chapter largely centers around one man. It's a man who's born blind. And Jesus has this man pointed out to him by his disciples. But the disciples don't say, Hey, go over here. Would you heal him, Jesus? They ask him sort of a theological question about the man. Jesus is the one who goes over to the man and heals him physically. He was born blind. He's never seen. And it sends shockwaves through the community. The religious leaders in that area of that day, the Pharisees, interrogate this man, interrogate his parents, interrogate the man again, and finally, what we would call excommunicate him from his religious community. And Jesus then goes and finds the man again and presses him about, okay, you see now, but do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, who is the Son of Man? I'm the Son of Man. And he worships Jesus. But what you've got is a picture of men roughing up a weak, needy, 
frail man. And the bookends of their roughing him up is Jesus caring for him body and soul. And then you get John 10. Now, there's a lot here to unpack. We won't cover every verse. And some of it's really confusing because sometimes it seems like the figures of speech are at odds with each other. Did you notice how it says, hey, the shepherd is the only one who goes through the gate. The shepherd is the only one the gatekeeper will let in. And by the way, I'm the gate. which Which is it? Are you the shepherd or are you the gate? And Jesus is saying, yes, I am. So let's try to just break down some of the the components here of this this metaphor that Jesus uses. First off, it's tempting to begin with the metaphor of the sheep, excuse me, the shepherd, but the word that dominates the text is sheep. Uh, I counted over a dozen times it's saying sheep, 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 sheep. Now, that is a very, very Old Testament way of thinking. Uh, Jesus can think up whatever he wants, but in his humanity, he is drawing from his own word in the Old Testament. There are lots of psalms that say things like, we are his sheep, the people of his pasture, Psalm 95, Psalm 100. Very old way of talking about God's people. We are God's sheep. Human beings in general are not. Very important. You're not a sheep just because you were born. You're a sheep because God makes you a sheep and brings you into His fold. And here's the other thing. It's not a complimentary metaphor. I think any preacher that's ever preached on Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or John 10, probably makes this point, so let me just pile on and be another preacher and say that we tend to think, you know, cute, cuddly lamb, sort of like our puppy back home. And if you talk to anyone who works with sheep, they will say, I mean, even ones that really care for them, hands-on, we have a family that does this, they'll say, total idiots. Idiots. Sheep are idiots. I mean, on the one hand, they are beneficial, they give wool, they do these things, but they will absolutely wander off. They'll go to a predator. Uh, they'll, go, they'll, they'll get drowned in the river or the creek. Instead of just drinking in it, they'll just go ahead and drown in it. Sheep. The metaphor is all the way through the Bible. Now, the original hearers probably would not have caught this, but we have the advantage of John writing this down And we have the benefit of what all else was written down in the Bible. And here's what that allows us to see. Jesus says something amazing. He says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Now hear what he's saying. Because if the Pharisees caught this, this would just put more of a death sentence on Jesus. He is saying... Those who follow me are the sheep. And what he's saying is, if you follow me, that's how we know that you're one of God's people. Because the Pharisees would say, no, we are God's people and we decidedly do not follow you. Jesus is saying, those who follow me are God's people. And then he's saying this, in Judea, there are these other sheep 
that are not of this fold. And I must go get them. And I'm going to bring them into this fold. And then we'll have one flock with one shepherd. Guess who the other sheep are? Well, if your name is something like Smith or Williams or Haybig, you know, something decidedly Gentile, it's talking about us. That I'm going to have a global sheepfold. One flock, not two, one. And I'll be the shepherd. And then that's the next part of the metaphor, obviously, is that he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Now, again, we said this. The first mistake is to sentimentalize it, the beautiful, clean, unstained tunic, cuddling the little lamb. But the second one is this. It's to miss the enormity of the claim. Because this is not just a way for Jesus to say, you know what? I lead the way and I look out for my followers. But in the same way that sheep is this recurring metaphor for God's people, guess what else is a recurring metaphor? Their shepherd is God. Okay, did you notice what the call to worship said at the beginning of our service? Look back at the, at the call to worship. Psalm 28. Save your people. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd. Carry them forever. What, what's one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible? It was probably the only one that my grandfather, Chesser, knew by heart. Psalm 23, the Lord is my what? Shepherd. It talks about He's the one that leads me to water and to green grass, makes me rest, feeds me, sets the table for me. But understand what Jesus is saying here. He is saying... I am God. Whether they caught it or not, it is there for us to see what He's saying. All these passages where you have this mighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the shepherd of His sheep, that's who I am. And For those who caught it and who did not follow Him, this would be blasphemy to their ears. Now, another claim that he makes, another part of the metaphor, is that he is the gate, he is the door. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, look look at verse 9. I am the door. And by the way, I just want to mention this because I only get to have certain times where I can mention this. Our logo of our church is, it's got a lot going on into it, Not, not all of which I'll go into right now. But it's largely built around the door in the lobby, which came with this building and which we refinished and this ugly door became beautiful. And we wanted to use that because, hey, guess what? One of the metaphors that our Savior uses about who He is is, I am the door. FYI, just wanted you to know that. Public service announcement for our logo. But when Jesus says that, here's the tension. And I was talking with our foundations class about this this weekend. Jesus is forever fascinating because simultaneously, seamlessly, He will be more inclusive than anyone who had ever lived and then He will be more exclusive. And sometimes we want Him to be either one. He will seamlessly be both. On the one hand, I will love and commit myself to sheep that no one 
wants to care for. No one wants to tenaciously love. They're nothing like cute sheep that you want to hold in your arms. But I will hold them in my arms. And there is no other way but through the door. And I'm the door. And this is echoed very starkly later in John. It's a famous verse, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I don't offer it. I don't teach it. I am it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. But on top of that, it's not just that he says that's what I am, but he makes a contrast between himself and people that go into the sheepfold to get at the sheep through another way. He talks about thieves and robbers. Now, we could apply that to a lot of groups, and he probably had the Pharisees in mind to a, to a large extent. But I want you just to think about this. We are in a very churchy place. To state the obvious, we're in a very churchy part of the country. And so, and again, I I could hear this in the foundations class yesterday, we have an unusual concentration of people who are not just in a church service, well, 100% are in a church service right now, uh, but who grew up with church, many of whom have been burned by it. Burned by it. And I would strongly suspect that if you and I could sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about it, I strongly suspect that however it manifested itself, verbally or financially or relationally or physically or whatever, that whoever was abusive, whoever brutalized you, was getting at the people of God and doing an end run around Jesus. And that what they came with were... Uh, rules or a system or this is how I say we do things or this is how our church does things. But what it wasn't giving you was pointing you to the shepherd. And Jesus says, let me, first off, I'm fully aware that that goes on. And second, I want to protect my sheep from that. If you see someone try to get to you and do an end run around me, that is a thief. That's a robber. They come to seek, to kill, and steal, and destroy. Always, always, anything that we bump into, here or out there somewhere, anything that professes itself as Christian, if it is not moving you toward Jesus, if it is giving you biblical insights to help you do better, beware. Jesus would say, anything that does an end run around me, the gate, and the shepherd, be suspect. Well, we're the sheep, he's the shepherd, he's the gate. What is it that we frail sheep need from him so badly, uh, from the shepherd? And there's a lot here, but just, just briefly a few things. First off, his voice. We need Jesus' voice. Look in verse 3. He keeps talking about this. He says, the sheep hear his voice, the shepherd's voice, And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, 
What, what have we got there? A couple of things to think about. Number one, I'm a little bit more minor point first. Every few years, there'll be sort of some dust kicked up. You'll get this in the news, and you'll get some History Channel documentaries about it, about lost books of the Bible or lost gospels, you know, that were forbidden and boxed out by the power brokers of the early church and that maybe we're not supposed to have four gospels, maybe we're supposed to have like ten gospels. In the early 90s, it was the gospel of Thomas. Uh, About three or four years ago, gospel of Judas. And I would say to you, playing off what Jesus said, I would say to you what one of my seminary professors said to me. He said, hey, friends, if you ever have any doubt about it, go to Barnes & Noble and buy one and read it. And then read the four Gospels. And then go back to it and then read the four Gospels. They, They don't sound mildly different. They sound wacko by comparison. There might be some interesting little, you know, sort of, proverbial sort of man, you know, maxims or wisdom, but it's just, it doesn't sound, you can quite literally, if you've been listening to him, recognize a different voice. That one will sound sort of like a kung fu sage, you know, waxing in these sort of ethereal uh, language. And then you'll go to the Gospels and Jesus will say, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And it has a weight and a punch and a scent of life and reality about it that just blows the smoke away. I would just say that to you. If you ever doubt, go read the other. You will recognize a different voice. But here's the main thing I want to say. To whom is the voice of the shepherd directed? It is directed to the sheep. Why is that so important? There is something deep inside of all of us that when we hear Jesus speak or we just hear the words of the Bible in general, it's much easier to take those words and aim the application outside the room. And one reason that when we're together that I like to aim the fleshing out of these words or the application. I want to, I really want to aim it in the room at us. Because the voice is for the sheep. And I want to say this for accountability before you, but I also want to say it for you to keep a check on your own discussions or for discussions in our community groups. When we hear Jesus' words, is the first place we go with that, yeah, those people out there, you know, Um, gangs. Is that the main place we need to aim God's Word? Is it gangs? Are gangs a problem? Yeah, they are a problem. Is that probably the first place I need to aim what I'm hearing from Jesus? No. His voice is for us. It's self-righteous to aim His words and say, yeah, that must be for them. It can be very subtle. You know, you can hear his words even in a sermon and think, come away from the sermon and what dominates your thoughts is, I just wish so-and-so had been there. Maybe it would be great if so-and-so had been here. But we're here. 
His voice is for the sheep. All right, so we need His voice. Second thing is this. We need His intimate knowledge. His intimate knowledge. Look in verse 3. It says, The sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. Uh, I brought, if I can find it, one of my children's books, Cecil, the Lost Sheep. And it's about one of the parables that Jesus told. And lo and behold, in the parable, he describes himself as what? A shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and he leaves the 99 to go find the lost one. But it's weird how a children's book can make you see something you hadn't seen. And there's this scene where uh, Cecil the sheep has wandered off. Um, And if this is sort of gooby to you, the last illustration is about Navy SEALs. So hang in there. Okay, you've got 100 sheep, and and the shepherd is counting off the 99. And so there he is, and he says, 1, Michael, 2, Kevin, 3, Annette, 4, Lucy, uh, 96, Meredith, 97, the other Meredith, 98, Abdul, 99, Emily, and he, he realizes Cecil is missing. And so, you know, I'm being the nice daddy and I'm reading this book and it hit me that I had never thought about that. That Jesus explicitly says, I know them by name. Now, I know theologically, yes, he has all knowledge, he knows all things. But he says, I know them by name. One of the reasons when I can, that when people come through the Lord's Supper, I like to speak to you by name. And trust me, I have dropped the ball and I have botched a lot of them. But I try because I want that to remind you of what he's like. That's what he's like. And that's how we want to be known. And he says in verses 14 and 15, the way I know my sheep and the way my sheep knows me, here's here's what's analogous to it, how God the Father knows me and how I know God the Father. How does Jesus know me? Jesus knows me the way the first two persons of the Trinity know each other. And that is jaw-dropping. But the third thing is this, is that we need life and death protection. Jesus says multiple times in this passage, verse 11, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. And as we hear it with, you know, 2010 A.D. New Testament ears, where we tend to go is, oh yeah, that's Jesus talking about dying on the cross. No one that was listening to Him that day knew anything about a Messiah who dies on the cross. That would not compute at all. So what would they have imagined? They would have imagined a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. What would that look like? It would look like somebody standing up to one of two things, either a human attacker... I'm going to kill you to get your sheep. And so it would be someone who's willing to be beat to death or stabbed to death for them. Maybe to give, just give us enough time that the other shepherd can go get help. It would either look like that or it would look like when an animal, a wolf, a bear, came after the sheep. And just to give them enough time, the man fought it to death and died in the attempt. Jesus says, what kind of shepherd am I? How do I know those that I call by name? I lay down my life for them. And what he's saying is this. He is saying, 
When I tell you that I'm a shepherd that loves my sheep and will take care of them, I'm saying to you, nothing will stop it. Okay, I promised you Navy SEALs. Here it comes. Actually, two books. I just finished the Navy SEAL book and I'm reading another book. The other book I'm reading is written by two hospice nurses and it's describing the experience of people in hospice as they move toward death. Uh, The other book I just finished is about Navy SEALs. This is the ultra, ultra elite special forces kind of soldiers in in our Navy. And it was interesting to hear something in both books. And just as a rule of thumb, if a book about hospice nurses and Navy SEALs ever overlaps, there must be a significant human point for us to grasp there. Uh, the nurses said that it's just extremely common that as people move toward death, they want to be reassured that they will not be left alone. That someone will be there with me. Um, you know, will you, the nurse, will you be here? Will this person I love, will they be here? But, but will, I, will someone be with me the whole time? But really what they want is someone not just up to death, but they want someone with them through the transition. And here's the Navy SEAL. He said that um, something that was instilled in their training is teamwork. He said, did I say instilled? I meant rammed home with a jackhammer. Teamwork. They slam that word at you every other minute. Teamwork, teamwork, teamwork. This all comes back to that ironclad SEAL folklore. We never leave a man behind on the battlefield, dead or alive. No man is ever alone. Whatever the risk to the living, however deadly the opposing fire, SEALs will fight through the jaws of death to recover the remains of, fall, of a fallen comrade. And boy, does that end up being relevant because that's what happens to his best friends. And he says this, um, It's a strange thing really, but it's not designed to help widows or parents of lost men. It's, desi- it's designed for the SEALs who actually do the fighting. There's something about coming home And we all want to achieve that, preferably alive. But there is a certain private horror about being killed and then left behind in a foreign land. No grave at home, no loved ones to visit your final resting place. Now listen to this. I know that sounds kind of nuts, but nonetheless it's true. Every one of us treasures that knowledge, no matter what. I will not be left behind. I will be taken home. And he describes the remains of his very, very best friends being found and placed in coffins with the stars and stripe over them and flown home and in that C-130 or whatever it is is a fully uniformed Navy SEAL standing guard over the coffin the entire trip. Standing guard from what? Who cares? We said we never leave him and we don't ever leave him. Here's the reality though. Eventually they do. You have to bury them and walk away. Someone in the hospice, you have to bury them and you have to walk away. You get to the last book of the Bible. Revelation, chapter 7. And that chapter ends with this giant number of people that no one can number, all the ethnic groups, all the nationalities, and they're looking up at a throne and up at the throne... It gives two metaphors. There's a lamb. It's Jesus. And that means that he's one of us. It says he's the lamb. And then it says, their shepherd 
in their midst. And he comes off the throne and he wipes every tear from their eyes. And all of us should stop and ask, will my to-do list do that for me? Will my favorite friend or lover do that for me? Will my disciplines do that for me? He will do that for me. He is the good shepherd. To see him as he is, is to take away the bad loves in our hearts and to create a good love for him that satisfies. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are weak, frail sheep. How we need you to be our shepherd. Oh Lord, if, it's, if we are here and we have never become your sheep, have never become one of your people, take out an old heart and grant us anew that we might follow you in your voice through life and death and the resurrection where you will stay before us and beside us forever. We ask in your name. Amen.